podcast dedicated to suspense and horror stories from the golden age of radio. I'm Eric. I'm Tim. I'm Joshua. We love scary old-time radio stories, and there's nothing quite like a disembodied voice telling a genuinely disturbing tale, but do these stories stand the test of time? Are we being deceived by nostalgia? Are they suspenseful or forgettable, bone-chilling or butt-numbing? That's what we're here to find out. For this week's episode, I chose Casting the Runes from one of my very favorite old-time radio shows, Escape. Escape was an anthology designed to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. With stories focused on life-or-death situations, many of them adapted from classic literature and featuring veteran radio actors such as Harry Bartell, Frank Lovejoy, Paul Frees, and William Conrad. Author John Dunning, in his book On the Air, the Encyclopedia of Old Time Radio, describes the basic formula of escape as a strong protagonist facing the impossible alone, rising to conquer or be conquered. Escape premiered July 7th, 1947 and ran until September 25th, 1954. Although Escape is highly regarded today, it was less than successful during its original run. Due to erratic scheduling by CBS, the show had at least 18 different time slots over seven years. Escape had difficulty attracting a long-term commercial sponsor or a loyal audience. As a result, the show lacked the budget and Hollywood star power of CBS's other legendary anthology series, Suspense. However, the quality of Escape was always on par with its star-studded Big Brother. In fact, many classic Escape scripts, such as An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge and Three Skeleton Key, were reused on Suspense sometimes more than once. Tonight's story, Casting the Ruins, is adapted from a short story by M.R. James, originally published in 1911. James was a medieval scholar, and his ghost stories reflected his antiquarian interests. They often involved intelligent but naive protagonists stumbling across ancient evils in mundane settings. According to James, a good ghost story must put the reader into the position of saying to himself, if I'm not careful, something of this kind may happen to me. Listeners, I hope nothing like this ever happens to you. But just so you're prepared, let's listen to Casting the Runes from Escape, originally broadcast November 19th, 1947. Forget the petty distractions around you. Forget what you think you know. Forget everything but what you hear right now. It's late at night, and a chill has set in. You're alone, and the only light you see is coming from an antique radio. Listen to the sounds coming from the speaker. Listen to the music. And listen... To the voices. Had a hard day at the office? Backache from bending over a hot stove all day? Want to get away from it all? We offer you escape. It is midnight, and you are alone. Suddenly the room is plunged into darkness. You sit frozen with terror, because something is there behind you. Something you feared would come. Something from which you must escape. 
Escape, produced and directed by William N. Robeson, and carefully plotted to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. Tonight, we escape to London and a world made strange and terrifying by the workings of an ancient barbaric curse, as Montague R. James tells it in his weird story, Casting the Runes. My name is Edward Dunning. I'm a scientist. I'm used to dealing with facts, not fairy tales. I'm regarded as Britain's leading authority on medieval life. And as such, I've studied much of the ancient fears and barbaric superstitions of those times. I should have been the first to scoff at any suggestion that the ancient powers of evil, the black magic of Teutonic days, could be believed and practiced in the 20th century. A few weeks ago, I should have laughed had you told me that a curse... A hex could kill a man. Today, I cannot laugh. It has happened to a man I know of. And now, it's happening to me. My first presentment of danger came on that day a few weeks ago when I dropped in to see Alfred Smythe, secretary of the National Science Association, and found him in a state of irritation lost it all, Dunning. I almost wish you hadn't been so brutally honest in your report on that Carswell paper. Why? What's the trouble? Oh, he's such a frightful fellow. He's raising a terrible row. You mean Carswell himself? Yes, it's bad enough a vicious charlatan like that calling himself a scientist. But now he's taking all his vindictiveness out on me. <laughs> Sorry, old chap. It's really me he'd like to get at. As a matter of fact, that's just what his last letter was about. He wants to know what supposed authority wrote the report rejecting his paper. You didn't give him my name. Heavens, no. As a matter of fact, Dunning, I haven't and I won't. And for a very special reason. Call it silly, call it crazy, call it what you will. I have an uncanny feeling about that man Carswell. Hmm? Why? Do you know anything about him? Nothing. I've never seen him. I only know that he wrote a paper called The Truth of Alchemy was hopeless. Precisely. And why was it hopeless? Well, besides being abominably written, it was supposed to prove that alchemy, black magic, and such rot actually exists. I think the man really believes it. Undoubtedly he does, and that's what I mean. He lives in an isolated old house in Warwickshire. He's rarely seen elsewhere, and in his whole career he's written only two things. This paper and a history of witchcraft published ten years ago. Yes, of course. I remember now. So that's the man. Yes, and that book was even worse than this paper. The man has a warped mind. I'm sure he's tried every unhealthy experiment in alchemy, witchcraft, and black magic. There's no telling to what lengths of vindictiveness a man like that might go. Well, it does sound a bit queer, but... She's... Not queer, Dunning. Evil. Oh, come. Man has a right to believe what he likes. He has a right to be angry with me. Here, I've glibly scoffed at the man's life's work. Well, perhaps I'm being overly suspicious and imaginative, but... I think there's more than anger involved here, Edward. Hmm? This may sound fantastic to you, but, well, John Harrington wrote the report condemning that witchcraft book of Carswell's ten years ago. Three months later, Harrington was dead. Hmm. But, Alfred, what's the connection? 
Harrington died under very peculiar circumstances. He was walking home alone late one night, and suddenly he screamed, broke into a run, lost his hat and stick, and climbed up a tree. A dead branch gave way. He fell and broke his neck. No one's ever been able to explain why it happened. Come now, Alfred. Jolly, you're not suggesting this... Oh, I don't this... know what I'm suggesting. I only know that after he reviewed Carswell's book, John Harrington didn't have a moment's peace. Now you've written an unfavorable review of his, this paper. If I were you, I should keep that fact well hidden. <laughs> oh, Alfred. Well, that's ridiculous. <laughs> Yes, I laughed at Alfred Smythe's fears. How could I have known then that I was to feel the same terror, the same agonized fear which gripped the heart of John Harrington as he crouched, panting, on the branch of a tree for another moment or two of life, while beneath him the thing came closer and closer. I'd almost forgotten the incident when, a few nights later, I was riding home on a late train. I was half-drowsing in my seat, barely keeping awake by looking idly at the car card at Westminster. The man directly opposite me must have been doing the same, because suddenly I heard him say, Here now, what can that one be advertising? I followed his eyes to the window beside my head. What I saw brought me bolt upright in my seat. In memory of John Arrington... Died September 18th, 1937, by falling from a tree. Three months were allowed. Blimey, what do you say that means, sir? Well, I... I don't know. But I did know. Smythe had been right. The affair with Carswell was not over, but only begun. I asked the conductor about the card, but he was as puzzled as I was. He had never seen it before. The card must have been put there expressly for me. That meant that Carswell knew it was I who had reviewed his paper. How had he found out? I got the answer the next day. I was in the select manuscript department of the British Museum doing some research in the quiet, almost deserted room. I'd been working steadily for an hour, oblivious to my surroundings, when suddenly, just at my shoulder, I heard a voice. I swung around in my seat. There was no one within 20 feet of me. I sat for a moment, shaken, and then I stooped to pick up the papers I had brushed to the floor. I straightened up to find a stout, elderly gentleman standing in front of me. Excuse me, sir. Uh, yes? May I give you this paper? I think it should be yours. Oh, yes, so it is. I thought I had them all. This one seemed to have slid across the floor. Thank you very much. Not at all, sir. Good afternoon. He walked slowly away and out of the door. A kindly, stout old gentleman. But there was something about him that made me feel strange. I went over to the attendant. Uh, yes, Mr. Dunning. Uh, did you notice that gentleman I was just speaking to? Oh, yes, of course. Uh, can you tell me his name? Why, that's Mr. Carswell. As a matter of fact, he was asking about you only the other day. Asking about me? Well, he asked who were the great authorities on medieval science. Of course, I told him you were the only one in the country. Oh, I see. Uh, would you like to meet him, Mr. Dunning? I'll see if I can... Uh, uh, no. No, thank you. 
It was as simple as that. Now Carswell knew. What would be his next move? What was I to expect? I reached home at dusk. And trouble stood on my doorstep in the long face and stooped form of my family doctor. I've had to upset your household arrangements, I'm sorry to say, Dunning. I've had to send both your servants to hospital. But what happened? Uh, something like termine poisoning, I should think. It's nothing serious. Well, what could have caused it? Well, that's the rather odd thing. They tell me they bought some shellfish from a hawker and headed for lunch. I've made inquiries, but I can't find that a hawker called at any other house on this street. Was this the next move? If so, it had succeeded. I was alone in the house, and my nervousness increased as darkness closed in and the hours advanced toward midnight. I went to bed, but almost immediately I thought I heard something. My study door opening downstairs. I went out and leaned over the banister. There was nothing moving, nothing visible. There was only a sudden, surprising gust of warm air playing about my legs. I went back into my room and locked the door. Suddenly, the lights went out. No doubt it was only a blown fuse. But the chills were playing up and down my spine. I went over to the bed and reached for my watch under the pillow. I suppose I wanted to find out the time. I don't know why. But fumbling on the pillow, my hand touched something far different from a watch. It was like a mouth with sharp teeth and hair around it, not human at all. I fled from my bedroom and spent a long and miserable night locked in the spare room, my ear to the door. But nothing came. I was not disturbed again. In the morning, I searched the house and found nothing unusual. But the mark of fear must have been stamped on my face, for Smythe noticed it next day. Darling, you look as if you hadn't slept for weeks. Is anything wrong? I... I don't know, Alfred. I... Uh, yes, there is. Carswell knows. How? They told him at the museum. Of course, we should have thought of that. Has anything happened yet? I don't know. It's too fantastic. It's probably my mind, hypnotic suggestion or something, but... Like that man Harrington, I have three months left. Edward! Must have been hearing things. I'm all on edge. I don't, I don't know what to think. John Harrington had a brother, Henry. Perhaps I'd better get you in touch with him. He might know more about this man, Carswell. Yes, yes, do it. And quickly. Three months is not a lot of time. It was arranged. That night, I found myself walking down the dark street that led from the railway station to the Harrington home. It must have been along this same street that John Harrington had walked that last night. Where he had broke and run, it must have been one of these trees bordering the lonely road in which he had spent his last horrible moments. The way was dark, and there was no living soul in sight. And suddenly, complete terror gripped me. Somehow I knew that I was being followed. At first I only felt it, and then I heard it. I walked steadily on for a moment, my stomach like ice. It was getting louder, coming closer. 
Unconsciously, my step quickened. I could barely control myself. I wanted to scream and run. The thing came closer. Closer. I confess, I broke and ran. Ran madly for my life. I was at a little side street. I turned down it, doubling back toward the railway station. I thought I would never make it. But finally, bright lights loomed before my eyes, and I think that I never have been so grateful for human companionship. There's no need to run, sir. The 840 won't be along for another five minutes. I felt very foolish. I couldn't bring myself to walk back down that street to Harrington's. I could only take the train home furtively and call Harrington next morning to beg his forgiveness. He seemed very understanding and asked no questions. Undoubtedly, Smythe had told him something about me. At any rate, he agreed to visit me at a place two nights later. And when he arrived and was made welcome, he began to talk about his brother. Yes, Mr. Dunning. John was in a very bad state for weeks before the accident, uh, if that's what it was. The principal thing seemed to be the notion that he was being followed. It became an obsession. Yes, I know. I don't think his death was an accident. Then perhaps you can explain it? No. But I have one clue. Your brother reviewed a book very severely not long before he died. Just lately, I happened to cross the path of the man who wrote that book. And his name, of course, is Carswell. That's right. As far as I'm concerned, that does it. Before he died, John was beginning to feel, much against his will, that Carswell was at the bottom of his trouble. Why? Well, it doesn't make sense. None of this does. But tell me. My brother liked music. He went to all the concerts in town, and he made a hobby of collecting the programs. One night, about three months before his death, he brought one home and showed it to me. I nearly missed this one, he said. It seems he'd lost his and was hunting for it under his seat when a neighbor, a rather stout elderly gentleman, offered to give John his. The kind gentleman was Mr. Coswell. Undoubtedly. I started to leave through the program and noticed on the second page some rather curious letters carefully written there in black and red ink. Neither of us could make much of it, except that the letters seemed to be runic. Runes. Runes, of course. Well, John thought it might be important and debated whether he shouldn't try to return the program to the stout gentleman. But just then the door blew open and a gust of air, of strangely warm air, blew into the room. In a flash, it took the program and blew it straight into the fire. Yes, your brother was right. He should have returned it. Well, there's nothing to be done then. Well, perhaps not. But do you know what runic letters mean? Well, they're all pre-Druid script, I believe. The kind of writing the barbaric tribes used long before the Romans invaded Britain. Yes, that's right. Casting the runes, they used to call it in the old days. Casting the runes. Uh, what do you mean? Well, it was a curse, a, a hex. In primitive England, people thought by casting the runes, that is, handing a person a piece of paper with certain runic letters on it, that uh, you could put that person out of the way, destroy him. It's an old superstition. And the only way to lift the curse was to return the paper to the one who gave it to you. To give it back without his knowing it. I don't believe that kind of nonsense. <laughs> Neither do I. Then what was it that killed John? I don't know. Perhaps his fear of the runes. Perhaps brooding about it. Becoming neurotic. Thinking he saw things and heard things and... Touched things that weren't there. Perhaps his own mind drove him to death. And what's the difference? Once you're dead? No difference at all. Casting the runes. Oh, it's rubbish. 
Yes, of course, but... Good heavens. What is it? I just remembered that day at the British Museum. He cast the runes on me. I went swiftly to the writing table, Harrington close behind me. My portfolio was there, full of the scribbled notes I'd been working on that day in the museum. And as I took it from my shaking hands and began leaping desperately through them, one strip of thin, light paper slipped and fluttered toward the open window with uncanny quickness. But Harrington was even quicker and slammed the window shut just in time. Got it? Well, thank heaven. If it were lost or destroyed, like your brother's... Then you wouldn't be able to return it to Mr. Carswell. Yes. Look at it. It's identical with the one John got. I looked at the flimsy paper. The characters, carefully traced in red and black, were runes, all right. That ancient language used by the Aborigines of prehistoric Britain. I couldn't decipher them. But as Harrington and I stood looking into each other's eyes, each of us could read the other's thoughts. Science or not, 20th century or not, this sheet of fool's cap spells death for its possessor. It spells death for you. It must be returned. Yes, I know. It must go back in such a way that it doesn't... that he doesn't know he's received it. That means we can't simply mail it. No, we can't. We must do it personally. That'll take doing. Well, he knows you by sight, doesn't he? Yes. You must shave your beard. It'll alter your appearance. He might strike any time. I have three months, as with the warning said. We've got to make good on this, Dunning. I've searched ten years for my brother's murderer, and now he must not escape. I dare not go near Carswell. So Harrington volunteered to keep a watch on him, to let me know when our chance came to return the runes, if it was ever to come. It was only a night or two after Harrington was there that I arrived home and found the calendar had come in the mail. When I examined it, I found everything after November 19th had been torn out. The next night, I had another envelope of the mail. This time it was a woodcut, an illustration torn out of a book, showing a dark, moonlit road and a man walking on it. And right behind him came a huge, dark shape, some awful demon creature. Under it were written some lines from the ancient mariner. And as I sat alone and read them aloud, I felt that now familiar gust of warm air playing about my legs. The man walks on and turns no more his head because he knows a frightful fiend doth close behind him tread. Now I knew the face of my terror, and it was with me always. Walking down the dark street at night, I heard its footsteps behind me. In my lonely house at midnight at Rome, the halls. Like the ancient mariner and John Harrington, I never turned to look. I couldn't. My nerves were going, and I could do nothing but wait. The days, the weeks slipped by, and still Harrington had no plan. I checked off the days on the calendar Carswell had sent. Now there were eight days remaining, then six, then three, two. 
one. It was the evening of the 18th. My last day on Earth was to begin at midnight. I was sitting alone in my living room, bathed in perspiration, fighting to keep my nerves in check. Suddenly, I felt that warm gust of air. I listened. There were soft footsteps. A shadow seemed to cross the hall door. And then the footsteps blended into a loud banging. No, no, not yet! I've still got one day more! Not yet! It's me! Oh! Oh, thank heaven! Hey, what's the matter, man? What is it? It was you. You were knocking on the door. Your footsteps. Yes, of course. Oh, thank heaven. I, I thought I... I look, man, you've got to pull yourself together. It's tonight we have our chance. What chance? Cars will leave Victoria Station by boat train tonight at ten. I'll get on with him there. You take the car I brought and drive to Croydon. Get on the train there. And be sure to bring the paper. Yes, Yes, I have it. You've shaved already. Good. Everything depends on his not recognizing you. This Harrington. Suppose he changes his mind. Suppose he doesn't take that trip. My time runs out tomorrow. He'll be there. And you'll do it. You'll do it well. You've got to. I stood on the platform of Croydon in my mind in a daze. I thought the train would never come, but it did. I saw Harrington at the window. He stared coolly at me. Of course, there was to be no sign of recognition. I entered the coach and slowly made my way down the aisle to the compartment where Harrington sat. Opposite him, staring full into my face, was Carswell. He looked up as I sat down. His eyes were heavy-lidded, his face bland. It was impossible to tell whether he knew. The train started. The next stop was Dover at the end of the line. My last chance... It was time to cast the rules. It was a strange ride. Carswell and I seated face to face, staring into each other's eyes. Harrington off to the side, pulling at his face with twitching fingers. If I could have only had a few whispered moments with him to plan our strategy, but that was impossible. The moments dragged tortuously, no one moved. Then suddenly Carswell leaned forward. I beg your pardon, sir. Haven't we met? Uh, met? Well, I don't think so, sir. Not unless you're in the plumbing business. Plumbing? No. Hardly. I hadn't planned it that way. The words, the accent, just seemed to come by themselves. And Carswell sat back. An enigmatic expression on his face. I wished desperately to know what he was thinking. Then suddenly he got up and went out into the corridor. Was this my chance? I was about to slip over to his bags to see if there were a way to secrete the rooms within them. When I caught Harrington's eye and read a warning in them. Carswell from the corridor was watching, waiting to see if we recognized each other. I muttered a prayer of thanks I hadn't moved. Carswell came back and took his seat. As he did so, wild, exultant hope surged up in my throat. For something slipped off his seat and dropped noiselessly to the floor. It was his ticket case, and he didn't see it. It was a small cardboard ticket case with a pocket on the cover. If I could just get to it and slip that tiny piece of paper into that pocket. For 15 agonizing minutes, I sat there and stared at it. 
If only Coswell would go out. But he sat stolidly staring straight ahead. We were coming into the outskirts of Dover, the train slowing down. Suddenly, Harrington stood up, reached up to the rack above Coswell to get his coat and bag. I stared at him blankly for a moment, surprised by his sudden clumsiness. And then I realized what he was up to. The bag, the coat, a briefcase all came tumbling down upon Coswell. What the devil? Oh, I say, I'm sorry. I'm terribly sorry. You clumsy fool, you might have injured me. What were you trying to do? Wait. It was my only chance. Coswell stood facing Harrington. I reached down, got the ticket case. And with trembling fingers, slid the paper into the pocket. He turned sharply to me and I extended the case toward him. Uh, excuse me, sir. Is this yours? Yes, it's my ticket case. Where'd you find it? Here on the floor. Must have dropped off when... Yes, I'm much obliged to you, sir. Not at all. Not at all. He looked at me fiercely, his rage at Harrington still twisting his face into a devil's mask. Then he glanced briefly into the ticket case and put it into his pocket. Pier of Dover, Harrington and I followed a few steps behind Carswell. I felt like I might faint. Carswell went straight to the gangway of the boat, and there the purser Excuse stopped me, him. Sir, does your friend have a ticket? My friend? What the devil do you mean? I'm traveling alone. Well, that's funny. I could have sworn there was another gentleman right there beside you, walking just at your elbow. Well, there isn't. And I suggest you see an oculist. Oh, I, I didn't see. I just felt. Sorry, sir. It must have been your rugs. My mistake. Come on, Danny. Our job's done. I didn't sleep that night. I lay awake and listened. But there were no footsteps, no warm gusts of air, nothing to disturb me. All day I felt remarkably free, although this was to have been my last day on earth. But only just now, when Harrington came in, could I really relax. Well, Dunning, have you seen the afternoon paper yet? I know. Not yet. Well, here. Look at it. On the second page. There. Abbeville, France. An English traveler examining the front of St. Wolfram's Cathedral today was struck on the head and killed instantly by a stone falling from the scaffolding. A note of mystery was added by the fact that although the cathedral was undergoing repairs, no workman was on the scaffolding at the time of the accident. The traveler was identified by papers found on him as a Mr. Carswell of Warwickshire. Uh, of course, it could have been an accident. Yes. Yes, it could have been. is produced and directed by William N. Robeson. And tonight brought you Casting the Runes by Montague R. James. Adapted for radio by Irving Ravitch and John Dunkel. With John McIntyre as Edward Dunning, Jan Wolfe as Harrington, and Bill Conrad as Carswell. The special musical score was conceived and conducted by Cy Fuhr. Next week... You are trapped in a hidden valley, high in the Andes walled in by sheer rock precipices and surrounding you 
closing in on you is a band of blind men who want your eyes. Next week, we escape with H.G. Wells' gripping story, The Country of the Blind. Good night, then, until this same time next week when we again offer you Escape. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. That was Casting the Rules from Escape. You're listening to the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society podcast dedicated to suspense and horror stories from the golden age of radio. Once again, I'm Eric. I'm Tim. I'm Joshua. So, that was Casting the Runes. That was Joshua's pick. Let's start, as always, with the picker and find out why. Hey. Hey, hey, hey. hey picker. Why'd you pick that one, picker? Pickerhead? Well... As I said in the intro, I'm a huge fan of Escape as a program. I like the variety of stories that they do. And this is, while it has a supernatural underpinning, uh, it's really a suspense story. And I think Mm -hmm. that's where all the tension works in this story. Um, It has the ticking clock element. Um, You are allowed three months. And I think that always is a great suspense thing to have a ticking clock that you have so much time and you've got to figure out a solution before that's over. I also like uh, James' story, the original story of this sort of very rational scholar who's skeptical uh, about uh, the supernatural, uh, but he's even not that fussed when he hears that uh, Carswell is upset. He even says something along the lines of, like, you know, a man has a right to believe what he wants to believe, he has a right to be angry with me, I scoffed at his life's work, and he's like, oh, well, fair's fair, and he's just sort of, you have this sort of everyday quality about him. Even though he's clearly a scholar, he's very intelligent. Mm-hmm. Um, and as he's slowly sucked into the supernatural world and loses it more and more, but has to find this sort of strength to fight it. I, I find it really compelling. When did you listen to this the first time? Was it for this podcast you found it, or had you listened to it years ago? Or? No, the first time I heard it um, was biking home very late at night in the dark uh, from work, uh, I had it on my headphones, and that's dangerous, Josh. <laughs> I've been told, uh, and I was just completely sucked in. And and we'll jump ahead. And in the moment that that I I literally on my bike stopped and went. <laughs> I made that noise. It's when he reaches under his pillow and oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. he the, feels the, the sort of mouth. the ma- sharp mouth was, with hair around it. And I was I like, was, ah! I was fine with all of that, you know, and the teeth and all, until he went with hair around the mouth. And I went, oh my God, just... there's a bearded hipster in his bed, <laughs> a decapitated Hipster, I think get re- out of the room. It's remarkably telling what you imagine the rest of that preacher is, because I, I, in my head, it's like a little dog, which is still scary. Yeah, but but what I related, what everybody has has picked something up or gone to to, to do something they've always done, and someone has left something weird there. It doesn't yes. have to be a real creepy thing or anything, but it, it, it's about what you expect. Uh, to feel when you reach a hand under a pillow. And and that is just so startling. I think it's a creepy image of the, the hairy mouth and sharp teeth, yes, but the fact that it's under your pillow. Have you ever, that, sensa- that contrast and sensation is... Have you ever been in bed and realized 
you know, there's something, and then you go, oh, it's just, and then it's like, I don't know, like a centipede or <laughs> oh, some yeah, yeah. kind of bug that has yeah, spider, and you went, oh my god, and you jump up around. Yeah, it's that quality times a zillion, right? I will just tell the story quickly, but I was in a uh, cabin doing a show uh, up way up north, and uh, the fan was on me, and I was listening to scary old-time radio in the dark, trying to fall asleep, so I was already a little scared. <laughs> And the fan was blowing on me, and the blanket that was around my neck, the fan was hitting the blanket, so the blanket was tapping me on the face. <laughs> and I was like, oh, what is that? And so I went to move the blanket from my face and realized I had a bat <laughs> on my head that had landed, and that was the bat wings. You've never seen a man scream and jump around? <laughs> and then the bat made that terrible screaming noise. There's nothing that these people can write that we can never do in this podcast <laughs> that is more terrifying than realizing, oh my God, there's a, a bat, bat on, on my face. face. <laughs> um, yes, so uh, the other thoughts that you had on this? Or? I think it is really well-structured, yeah. writing-wise. It's just very taut. Uh, for example, a scene that I thought was really great is in the library um, when he's going doing medieval studies or whatever the heck uh, Mr. Dunning does and um, Carswell comes up to him for the first time and says oh you dropped this and hands him the sheet of paper it's a nice twist because that whole scene comes the, the focus in that scene is that Dunning is realizing that's Carswell and he's figuring out how uh, Carswell learned about him mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so it's this nice distraction and you, you do not pay any attention to Carswell picking up that sheet of paper that is so important. So it's just a, a really well well done scene. So you so when he realizes later that oh he was handing me the runes, uh, unlike a lot of like earlier old think, radio stuff that really telegraph stuff, you have this yeah. great like oh moment along with him. But I think and I'm maybe speaking for Tim, I think that most people listening to that when they start talking about him getting the runes handed mm-hmm. to him. Went back immediately to that scene. By that paper, time, yeah, and, yes. and went, yeah, you go oh, all too. But in right, the moment, we, uh, yeah, no, I agree. I, I guess what I was saying, I thought you were saying we discover it with them, but we discover it when it's brought up. Yes, I yes, guess same that. thing. Yeah, but yeah. in that moment, yeah, I think yeah. that whole scene with him handing the paper is just about yeah. introducing Carswell, about yep. figuring out the librarian told Carswell who Dunning was, and it's just masked in there so nice. Uh, I think this is such a good episode, so well written, so well structured that I feel I can pick at some things. Good. <laughs> Take uh, away. There's a uh, one thing that sort of struck me as an interesting thing to look at. He said euphemistically uh, that they never really reflect on. They start with this guy is mad at you because you because uh, you tore apart his belief in the supernatural and, and alchemy, and then they immediately go to well, you know, the last person who did this was cursed and died, and they sort of just fall down that slippery slope pretty quickly without ever really acknowledging, like, hey, he was actually right, and this is a real thing, and I was wrong. Oh, interesting, right. He never went back on, oh my god, I should have never written that, he was right. Right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I get, yeah. yeah, I get what you're saying. I will say that one of the things I love about the very last lines of this, and this is maybe me being Tim and backfilling it, <laughs> but... Do it! There's that moment when they they find out that Carswell has died, something fell off a building, and they're sitting there together going, it 
could have been an accident. Yeah, and he goes, true. yes, it could have been an accident. To me, I love that because it feels like they're trying to put on their former point of view. They're, they're, they're trying to, trying to mm-hmm. just yes. make believe that, yes, it could have been an accident. This is all over. Now I can go back to thinking the way I, I used to think. And he sounds just so distraught when he says it could have been an accident. It's like his world is totally yes. changed now, and I, he can't go back. I'll take that a step further, Joshua, and that I think the intent of this was that there is nothing supernatural happening. No. I think that they were driven to crazy by the suggestion of it, I think that's the that's the implied I premise of this entire plot is that nothing that happened to the guy that died before, uh, who, who was supposedly cursed, or happened to him, or to Coswell, is that good? Yeah, Carswell. Carswell yeah. uh, is completely unexplainable. You're right. Uh, ironic, uh, coincidental, yes, but nothing that is definitively a curse thing. So, uh, I found the scary part of this to be our own brains, how quickly that we can... The level of paranoia. Yeah, yeah, right, how quickly we can buy it. Even a scholar who not only poo-poos this and, and, and writes against it and doesn't believe in it, but how quickly he can turn on it and say, oh my God, I'm cursed. Mm-hmm. And he is learned and, and, and mm-hmm. smart in this area. I thought that was the entire point. You're right. I was willing to just totally buy into the supernatural element of it, and mainly because of the power, I think, of, of the actor and his performance, and he made me believe in it. But yeah. you're right. There's nothing explicitly supernatural. He does not no. witness someone, you know, rising from the dead. He doesn't nope. see, a, you know, darkness come together as a monster and attack him. He feels some things under the pillow where you can get freaked out, and uh, the his... Uh, servants were poisoned, clearly poisoned by Carswell. Uh, nothing supernatural there. Well, to get him out of the house yeah, and I, leave him alone to have him get even correct. more paranoid. I just, I thought that the entire scary premise was based on look how quickly we can uh, mess ourselves yeah. up. <laughs> but it makes it even more complex. You can read it right. both ways. Right. There's the impressive achievement also of Guy fell out of a tree, which seems not, I mean, sad, but not exactly terrifying, but they just present it as, and you, something similar is going to happen to you, and it's scary. Mm-hmm. Um, that the sort of comedic aspect of falling out of a tree doesn't <laughs> undercut the horror. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> right. And, and Eric's right, that level of hysteria reaches this sort of fevered pitch uh, toward the end when um, Dunning is alone in his house, and uh, Harrington, the brother of the original victim, Screams. comes over and knocks on the door, and yeah, he just, just loses his it. mind. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I got to tell you, if a bunch of circumstantial things happen after I was told I was cursed, and I blew it off, but then all these things started happening, and if I started to give credence to them, at my last twenty-four hours of my three-month. I'm going to die. Be high stress. That, yeah, that knock on the door. I'm going to tell you right now, a knock on the door right now freaks me out. Because I don't think people should be knocking on other people's doors. I don't care who you want me to vote for. Just, I yell through the window. That's weird. It's 2016. Don't go knocking on people's doors. You I have an email address. <laughs> Leave me alone. Do you think I'm going to let you in? I don't care about that. Uh, here's a question for you. Uh, I had a moment. And it goes back to what Tim's point was just a few minutes ago. Um, he wrote basically a review of his 
book or there was theory. a paper he was submitting for paper, review yep. and mm-hmm. and he said it was yeah he said this is and the last guy said it was nonsense mm-hmm. okay so I had that moment where I went oh good a critic's finally gonna get his <laughs> yeah take that critic <laughs> turned it around gave it back to the artist <laughs> yep uh, there's another point I wanted to, t- to talk about a little uh, which is not necessarily a criticism because it's rampant in lots of horror stories is that idea of a horror story is only a horror story for the first two acts and then the third act becomes an action sequence mm-hmm. I know exactly where we're going with this y- yep uh, and so in this case it's not so much action as it became sort of an intrigue mm-hmm. uh, trying to s- do some spy stuff on a train it's exactly what he was just saying earlier though is that this is a, this is suspenseful yes it, it's not much scary this is like a Hitchcock uh, movie in mm-hmm. a way that last scene on the train is brilliant. It's hard to but it's realize a genre it, shift. It, it is a genre yeah, shift. Absolutely, it is. Yes, and it doesn't feel like radio. It's so well realized. Yep, very you, much so. Yeah, they, they use some narration, but it's outside of uh, the scene itself. So it's not dialogue between people narrating it and it feels tense you can see it they're in a tight train car they're really close to each other and making eye contact between dunning and harrington to try to read cars well and it's just it's very tense and you see it all visually without ever resorting to like like explicitly saying i'm standing up now and reaching for my suitcase like in this older era by this time this is the mid 40s they have really realized like how can we effectively make radio drama how can we mix a narrating voiceover to give you some of the information but also use foley also use uh you know really strong actors to convey the emotion of the scene it's just really good and and how you write the dialogue of that narration and there's a great sentence in that scene that to to back up exactly what you're saying and that is when he says i realized and i'm gonna paraphrase but i re- i was so happy that i had not made a move when he looked mm-hmm. and he was going to grab the thing and in that moment he caught his eye and his eye his eyes just said something uh, yeah. to him mm-hmm. like, don't do it don't mm-hmm. don't do it but remember, the guy is watching that guy mm-hmm. to, for his face, so his eye movement had to be something very subtle. And then he said, and I was so thankful that I had not moved an inch. Instead of saying, I didn't move an inch. This is an interesting yeah. way to tell that better, and it became very suspenseful. It fused the emotion and the action perfectly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it feels very filmic. Strangely, even though it's a radio show. That's why I said it's very Hitchcock at the end. Mm-hmm. It was very. Uh, I also liked how the actor uh, playing the main guy, uh, uh, Dunning, Dunning, yeah. yeah. I like how he uh, picked up his pace. The luggage falls. He sees his moment. Yeah. He starts speaking faster yeah. mm-hmm. and faster and faster. Picked it up. I hand it to him. Is this yours? I also like that line. I found it very fascinating. The line where he said. I don't know where that accent came from. And I don't know how... I had never thought about being a plumber. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it just seemed right. I thought that was really mm-hmm. cool, too. Yeah, like, that just popped out of him. And he's he went, a oh. medieval scholar, and he's right. sitting there like he's in disguise <laughs> and trying this like really convoluted plan. But again, we would be ripping that if he did that and didn't explain it. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. So medieval scholar all of a sudden is king of accents and yeah. cover <laughs> stories. Yeah. He's, oh, I don't know where that came from, and mm-hmm. it seemed right. I loved writing like that to explain that away, yeah. and and that explanation adds to the emotion of 
He's uh, that's this calm lid on a panicked boiling pot. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. He's just barely keeping it together. Yeah. Um, did you think he was going to accomplish giving him the ruins back? That's where some of the suspense comes from. Right, I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure because particularly in this era of you know suspense and right. horror stories, it's really a toss-up. It's not like modern. Well. I mean, the most modern television now, a lot of main characters will die. But if you go back 10, 20 years ago, there there was a period of time in entertainment where heroes and protagonists always was lived. Yeah. Yep. And this is but an in era. horror, too. Yeah. In escape. You kill the idiots, but yeah. the, the people you like get yeah. to live. In, in, in escape and suspense and all many horror other shows that we've listened to in this Dark podcast. Fantasy and, uh, people always die at the end. So I was riveted because he's like... You don't know what's going to happen. I'm glad you said that because it's exactly what I thought, and that's why I loved it. I don't know. Is he going to be able to do this or not? I'm not sure. They could kill him, and that would be the end. But we get to this point, as he was saying, that we start to go, oh, well, they're eventually going to get saved, so this is all going to work out. I mean, this might be the first protagonist in, like, four or five po- of our podcasts who have survived to the end of the radio show. <laughs> I mean, right? it, is, it is not common. Oh, and the uh, two things that I've mentioned in previous podcasts of it, we care because we like this guy so much. Uh, between the performance and the writing, he's a very likable guy, and we mm. want him to live. Um, yeah. And then the second point, he said to Delang, trying to remember what his second point was. <laughs> <laughs> Come back to the second point. But we also really liked uh, Harrington, the brother of the original victim, because he's been waiting, I think they said, ten years to, to try find to, his murder. To find this guy's yes, murder. Yes. And I clearly did, other people probably didn't believe him that there was a murder. I did get a little lost in why it took him three months to find a moment to well, I, give him the ruins. I got that. I really believe, because if he tipped his hand at all, it was over. I mean, if if this guy figured out that he's trying to give it back, yes, to him. Yeah, and yeah, that yeah. he knew like someone's going to try to give me a piece of paper, and plus, it's really suspenseful if you wait to the very yes. last day. <laughs> it's never <laughs> suspenseful when you cut the red wire, blue wire, and there's like two hours still left yeah, on the clock. Right, yeah, like, <laughs> has to be ten yeah. seconds. Right? I remembered my other point. Okay. Yeah! Yes, we filibustered for you. Thank you so much. Um, We've done previous stories where they provided you, here's an authority, here's a way out, here's a solution that will eventually get you mm-hmm. out of this, and then taken it away, and that's horrible and scary. And here is, uh, they've just kept sort of pulling it, you pulling it away like a cat toy until the very last mm-hmm. minute, and mm-hmm. then you get. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was really satisfying. And then still yeah. in the in the classic sort of horror genre, there's the, there's a there's a sense of defeat or sort of existential horror in his voice as we already talked about at the very end like yes it, it could have been an accident and you're not sure what that means is it is it Eric's point of view that he's suddenly realizing maybe this was all in my head maybe I'm crazy or is it that he's suddenly realizing I have to change the way I think of the entire world now did, did I win only to lose because there's all this stuff out there that I didn't think existed <laughs> and did I just kill this guy <laughs> yeah, and did I just kill a man right <laughs> well right and he doesn't have to live with that guilt because maybe he didn't kill him yeah yeah uh, we also talk about people reacting the way we want them to react 
and we brought this up earlier when uh, Harrison, the brother, knocks on the door in the final hours. Yeah. yeah. That scream, that panic is is a wonderful piece of radioactive. It's so it yeah. sounded it's like so you real. discovering there was a bat on your face. <laughs> yes, it's exactly right. That might be right. <laughs> it's hey, a good hey, notice hey, in the hey, record. Hey. Yeah. I didn't sound okay. It was a little like that. Uh, yeah, the, I love that moment. Plus, he's also very dignified at the beginning. He's a learned scholar. He's well-respected in his field. He's poo-pooing everything at the beginning. Yeah. And, and then he has that kind of freak out. Yes, I want to hear that. Yeah. Drive him to the point of changing his entire personality mm. and expectations of, of who he is. So we hated this, right? We oh, hated man. <laughs> well, we talked a long time. It was so no bat on the like, face, I'll tell you that. <laughs> All right, so stands, stands the test of time, too? Absolutely. Joshua? Yes. Course? Yes, I think yeah. it does as well. Well, you've been listening to the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, a podcast dedicated to suspense and horror stories from the golden age of radio. If you'd like to learn more about this show or perhaps listen to past shows, please listen to past shows. <laughs> um, or more about us or upcoming things that we have going on where you can see us live in person on stage doing uh, other things other than this, you can go to ghoulishdelights.com. That is ghoulishdelights.com, not goulash, ghoulish delights. <laughs> goulash. Goulash, <laughs> yes. Uh, if they're on iTunes, what should they do, Joshua? Write a review. Pref- Preferably five stars. Yeah, no, no. Let me change it. <laughs> write a good review. If you're going to write a bad review, seriously, find something else to do. <laughs> we're we're not hurting anybody. <laughs> just write a good we're just three middle-aged <laughs> men talking about old radio shows. <laughs> yeah, Why but, you got to kick us? <laughs> we're going to die soon. What? And I, you would the last? Yeah, well, you know, it's half over, brother. You want the last thing that we see to be? You three are idiots. And then I go, all right. But don't write the review for him because now someone's got to write that. Oh, please do. <laughs> all right. Thank you again so much for listening. Once again, I'm Eric. I'm Tim. I'm Joshua. And remember, until next time, look out!